encourage you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, and we're going to be looking this morning at verses 17 to 31. Let me read for us Mark 10, 17 to 31. And as he, that is Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you acknowledging that we are in need of hearing from you this morning. Lord, in everything that's going on in our society and just things that have changed again, once again announced on Friday, it's very hard for us to focus. So I ask, God, that you would allow us, by your Spirit, to not allow the distractions of this world to affect how we hear your word this morning. I pray that you would focus our minds and our hearts upon Christ and his words, and that you, Lord, would accomplish your purposes in our lives, that, Lord, we would leave here with a greater desire to conform our lives to the will of Jesus Christ, and that if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, that today might be the day of repentance and salvation for them. We pray this in Christ's name. Well, last week we saw that no person can enter the kingdom of heaven unless they become like a child. 
we saw what really what that meant was is that in order to enter the kingdom of God, we need to have a, an utter helplessness and dependence upon God like children do in order for people to enter Christ's kingdom. The self-sufficient have no place in Christ's kingdom. And it's not a coincidence that this story in, in, in Mark 10, 13 to 16 about entering the kingdom like a little child, this story precedes Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. Because the rich young ruler, by definition, lives a life that's completely the opposite of humble-like child, humble childlike dependence. So after Jesus teaches about the kingdom and childlike dependence, we read in verse 17 that he was setting out on his journey. Of course, he was making his way towards Jerusalem. And while he was setting out, a man eagerly approaches him. As we read in verse 17, a man ran up and knelt before him. Who is this man? Well, we don't know his name, but we know that he was wealthy according to verse 32. And Luke's account in Luke chapter 18 tells us that he was also a ruler. So this man, though we, though we don't know who he is exactly, we know that he's affluent and we know that he's powerful. He's a man with great influence. And I also think that there's a level of genuine sincerity in regards to him coming to Jesus. He's not approaching Jesus with the attitude that the Pharisees did in order to test him. He kneels before him and calls him good teacher out of genuine respect. Yet nevertheless, his genuine inquiry doesn't result in him becoming a follower of Christ. Because in the end, he's not ready to humble himself and repent and follow Christ. So he, he runs to Jesus, he, he kneels before him, and, he, and asks Jesus possibly the most important question a human being can ask. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now we need to ask and stop, why is he asking this question? Why is he asking this question? It's easy to overlook this. Most likely, he genuinely wanted to know Jesus' thoughts on the matter. He's probably been one of the people in the crowds li listening to Jesus teach. Not only that, he's also probably thinking that so long as one obeys the law, one will receive eternal life. That was the, the typical mindset of the Jews at the time. Keep the law and you'll live. He's probably wondering if Jesus will affirm this idea. You see, the question reveals something about his assumptions. He thinks there's something he can do. He thinks there's something he can do to inherit eternal life. And that assumption informs Jesus' response to him. You see, Jesus responds in a way that most of us wouldn't respond if we were asked this question. If you had a friend or a family member or a neighbor come up to you and ask you, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I'm guessing that 99% of us in this room would respond by saying this, repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, 
he questions the man about his idea of who he of who is good and then draws him to the law. This is what Jesus says in verse 18 to 19, where he says, And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. See that? Jesus doesn't tell him, repent and believe in the gospel. Rather, he asks him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And then he lifts off the commandments. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. What's Jesus saying here? Why is Jesus saying this? Is, is he denying his own goodness? No, of course not. What he's doing is confronting this man's assumption about who is good or who can be good and what makes someone good. In other words, by stating this about God, that is, no one is good but God, and no one else, right, Jesus is already confronting this man on his lack of goodness. No one is good but God alone. I wonder how that man responded or, or his face reacted when he heard that from Jesus. And then he lists or he lists off six of the Ten Commandments that all have to do with loving one's neighbor. Why does Jesus do this? Why not just tell him to repent and believe in the gospel? Well, here's why. The man wasn't ready to hear repent and believe in the gospel. One will only repent if they see the need to repent. And this man doesn't see the need yet. He doesn't see that he needs mercy and grace from Christ. And we know this based upon his response to Jesus. Jesus lays out the commands, and how does he respond? Well, in verse 20 we read, And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now this might surprise you, but I actually think this is a genuine response. In one sense, this man is telling the truth. It's misguided, it's self-righteous, but he really does believe he has kept these laws from his youth. And I actually think he has, in one sense. He looks at these commands and concludes, I haven't murdered, I haven't committed adultery, I haven't stolen, I've made all my money the, the right and just way. He, he hasn't acted as a false witness. He's honored his father and mother. He has really done these things. You see, I think what you have here is a similar reality to the Apostle Paul before he encountered Christ. You see, we often think that all of the Pharisees were, were hypocritical, evil men. But the fact is, there were Pharisees, like the Apostle Paul, who were genuine in their desire and attempt to keep the law. Paul was an example of this. In Philippians chapter 3, you have that incredible chapter where, where Paul talks about all the things that he, he could boast in, right? That he's a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day, a tribe of Benjamin, right? He, he lists off all these things. But then, of course, he says all of this is like done to him now that he knows Christ. But one of the things he lists off, he says this, As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Blameless. Christ is a lot. Uh, Paul's not lying then. Paul genuinely believed that under the law, in regards to righteousness, 
He was blameless. But here's the thing. Both Paul and this man, here in the story, had a very shallow understanding of the law. It was surface level. On the surface, Paul was blameless in regards to the law. On the surface, this man here in the story was blameless in regards to the law. But Jesus here demonstrates not only to this man, but, but many in Israel, that they don't truly understand the law. They don't truly understand the law. For if they did, they would know that they cannot truly keep the law in its truest, fullest sense. And this is what Jesus shows in his response to him. When he says in verse 21, or we read in verse 21, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Now, before we go any further, I think it's just important that we see that. Looking at him, he loved him. I love that Mark includes this because it reveals what Jesus is about to say flows from a heart of love for this man. He looked at him and he loved him. And what he's about to say is extremely hard, but it's because of his love that he says it. So what does Jesus reveal to this wealthy man? He reveals to this man that he is in fact a lawbreaker. Look at verse 21. You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have, give to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, come follow me. Now I want you to see here that Jesus gives two exhortations and one promise. The first exhortation is, give all that you have to the poor. The second exhortation is, come and follow me. And the promise is, do this and you will have treasure in heaven. And how does the rich young ruler respond? Well, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This wasn't repentance. This was sorrow over the fact that what Jesus demanded him to do was too hard because he loved his possessions. Why did Jesus do this? Jesus did this to reveal to the man that he was actually, in fact, a lawbreaker. What law had he broken? The first commandment in the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You see, despite this man's attempt to keep the law, Jesus exposes him to the reality that he hadn't. That he was a lawbreaker just like everyone else. And the specific thing Jesus exposes is the man's idolatrous heart. See, it's interesting. There's no way this man or any Israelite at that time, there's no way they would have ever thought that they were idolaters. After the Babylonian captivity, Israel had once and for all put away its worship of carved images, never again to worship down at the image, uh, to worship before the images of gold and, and silver and carved creatures. And despite all of that, the reality is, 
idolatry of the heart was still present in Israel. And Jesus, by, by calling this man to extreme action, give all the way that you have, revealed to the man that he loved his wealth more than God. See, here's the reality. What Jesus was doing here was simply calling this man to true repentance and true faith. Give away all that you have to the poor was the call to repentance. If you're truly repentant of your idolatry of wealth, then give it away. True repentance, hear this, always demands proper action. You haven't truly repented of your sin if you have not taken action against the sin. And not only that, he was also calling him to faith, to trust, to believe. Where he says, come and follow me and you will have treasure in heaven. Do, do you believe me? Then come and follow me. You see, true faith, just like true repentance requires action, true faith always requires following. You cannot truly have faith if you don't follow. See, he asked Jesus what, what must he do to inherit eternal life, and the answer was simple. Repent and believe. Repent and follow me. Give away all that you have and come and follow me. And he wasn't able to do it because his love for his possessions made him a slave to his possessions. See, even with Jesus promising him treasure in heaven, he was not able to do it. He was a sinner and a lawbreaker, and he didn't realize it until Jesus exposed it. This is why the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 3, 19 and 20, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. This is the purpose of the law. So that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight or... For by works of the law, no human being will inherit eternal life, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's the purpose of the law, and that's what Jesus does here. He uses the law to confront the man, to reveal to the man that he was in fact a lawbreaker, he was in fact an idolater. Now you might be saying, Peter, that just seems so extreme, so radical. Give away all that you have to the poor? Well, is it any more extreme than what Jesus said two chapters before in Mark 8, 34 to 37? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world if he forfeits his soul. You see, what Jesus called that man to, in the extremeness of asking him to give up all that he had for the sake of the poor, confronting him specifically, the reality is, there's a similar call upon all of our lives. We are called to take up our cross and follow Jesus, to deny ourselves. And if we don't, we are not worthy. 
So the man departs sorrowfully, and Jesus looks around at his disciples, and he sees this as an opportunity to teach a very important spiritual lesson. And in this lesson, he gives a serious warning about wealth. Look at what he says in verse 23 to 25. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus repeats twice this, the extreme difficulty it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And just in case the disciples don't get it, he uses a common proverb to show the extremity of this warning. He takes the largest animal in Palestine, the camel, and says that it's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. In other words, what Jesus is saying is this. It's impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's utterly impossible. Now, first things first, I want to be clear. Jesus isn't condemning having wealth. You can be wealthy and be a lover of money, and you can be poor and be a lover, lover of money. Every person who buys lottery tickets demonstrates that they are a lover of money, despite the fact that they are probably poor. See, he's not saying it's sinful to have wealth. He's saying that there are major dangers in having wealth. So much so that it makes it almost impossible for a wealthy person to enter God's kingdom. You see, wealth has an effect upon the sinful heart that makes it extremely difficult for people with wealth to enter God's kingdom. And the question we need to ask is why? What is it about wealth that makes it so difficult for people to enter the kingdom? Well, one, the sinful heart can so easily make an idol out of material possessions that the heart becomes numb to spiritual realities. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You see, we as a society worship at the shrine of materialism. And we find that shrine to be quite satisfying, to the point where we forget God we become numb to spiritual realities and to our spiritual need. Proverbs 38 8-9 alludes to this, where Solomon says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Why? Lest I be full, that is, if you give me wealth, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? In other words, when you have more than what you need, there is a temptation to come to a place where you become full and you deny God, you forget your need for God. Wealth causes the sinful heart 
to become numb to spiritual reality. Secondly, wealth causes people to set their hope and security in their possessions rather than God. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 6, 17-19. Remember this, this is a warning he's writing to Christians. He says this, As for the rich, that is, as for the rich Christians in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, that is, not to be arrogant. In other words, wealth brings arrogance. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Riches can cause you and I to set our hopes on our wealth rather than on God. And what's Paul's solution to making sure that we don't set our hope on riches? Well, then he says in verse 18, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Thirdly, and this is what I think Mark is alluding to here, wealth can also cause people to no longer feel the helpless dependence that's necessary to enter the kingdom. Jesus had just told the disciples that no one can enter the kingdom unless they humble themselves and become like little children. Until one acknowledges their utter dependence upon God, they will never enter the kingdom of God. And the wealthy, the rich, because of their wealth, find it harder to see their helplessness and utter need. This is why it's so hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, it's easy for us to think Jesus is only referring to the, to the really rich, right? To the elites of society. This doesn't apply to us folks. We, we middle-class citizens. Well, if you're middle class and you live in North America, you're far wealthier than you think. And I think this passage should at least make us stop and reflect and cause us to ask the question, has wealth become an idol in my life? Am I living for Christ or possessions? There are lots of ways for a person to be able to discern that. But one of the ways partly to discern this is to examine and evaluate what you're giving to the Lord on a regular basis. Now, I'm not saying this about our church because I don't know what anyone in our church gives to the Lord. I don't know what anyone in our church makes. You all know what I make based upon our budget that you vote on. But I don't know what anyone makes. I don't know the percentage of what people give in our church. But here's what I do know. There have been several studies done, and they have determined or shown that the average giving of a Christian in North America is 2.43% of their salary. 2.43%. That's Christians, any professing Christians across denominations. With evangelicals, it goes up to about 3.5 to 4%. Now, I don't know what you hear or what you think when you hear that number. But this is what I think. I think those numbers demonstrate that there's an idolatry problem with the church in North America. Even the pagan, the pagans gave their gods 10% of their income. False gods. 
Yet we as Christians who claim to worship the living God, who redeemed us by the blood of his own son, on average, only give 2.43%? I think it exposes an idolatry problem in the church of North America. Let me be clear. I'm not saying that God requires anyone to give 10%. I'm not saying that God requires anyone to give 20%. I'm not saying God requires to give anyone 5%. There are some of us who legitimately can't. There are some of us who can't even give 2%. And you know what? That's okay. But what the scriptures do make clear is that God is looking for a joy-filled, sacrificial giver. And I don't think 2.43% on average demonstrates joy-filled, sacrificial giving amongst Christians. I really don't. Maybe wealth has a hold of our hearts a little more than we're willing to admit. Hear this. Jesus does not need your money. God does not need your money. Your money belongs to God. The reason why God calls us to sacrificially give is because it exposes and reveals the true nature of our hearts before Him. He's concerned about your heart. So Jesus gives this extreme warning about the dangers of wealth in relation to the kingdom. And how do the disciples respond? They're astonished. Verse 24 reads that they were amazed at his words. And then verse 26 reads, they were exceedingly astonished. And they say to Jesus out of their astonishment, who then can be saved? Why are they asking that? Well, there's possibly partly two reasons for that. The Israelites understood that under the Old Covenant, there was legitimate blessing and prospering by God for those who were faithful to God. Abraham was blessed by God. God prospered him in wealth. God prospered David. God prospered Solomon. God promised Israel that if they kept the covenant, if they were faithful to the covenant, he would prosper their lands. So there is a legitimate reality in the scriptures that, that if you are faithful to God, according to the old covenant, God will prosper you. He will bless you. But what often happened and what the Pharisees did is they took this to an abusive extreme. And you see the same reality today amongst God, prosperity gospel preachers. That those who are wealthy, it's automatic because it's automatic that they're blessed by God, but those who are poor, well, they're not. That's not the biblical teaching. But the disciples, they're astonished at hearing this from Jesus, that, that it is extremely difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God because they themselves think that out of anyone in society who seems to have God's favor, it's the rich. So if the rich who seem to have God's favor can't enter the kingdom of God, then how can anyone enter the kingdom of God? How can the poor be saved if the rich can't? And what's Jesus' response? Look what he says in verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. 
You know what Jesus is saying? It's utterly impossible for any human being to inherit eternal life if left to themselves, whether you're rich or you're poor. No human being can enter God's kingdom in and of themselves. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've accomplished. The bar, the gates are barred from any human being in and of themselves. What humanity, though, has no ability to do, Jesus says, God is able to do. Why? Because God is able to do the impossible. That is, God is able to do the miraculous. The miraculous. If God can speak creation into existence out of nothing, he can save a sinner like you and like me, whether you're rich or you're poor. Because all things are possible with God. Now Peter hears all of this. He saw what happened to the rich man, and like, and like typical Peter, in his excitement, he decides to speak up. As he says in, in verse 28, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Now, it's possible that Peter's trying to say, we've done what the rich man didn't do. We have left all to follow you. We've made the great sacrifice, Jesus. And you know what Jesus says in response? Any sacrifice for my name and the gospel is actually, in the end, gain. Any sacrifice that we make for the name of Christ and for his gospel is actually, in the end, gain. In the end, you actually haven't sacrificed anything. That's what Jesus is saying. And here's why. Everything you give up for my sake is so much less than what you will gain now and in the future. That's what he says in verses 29 to 31. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now, a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. See, this is, in one sense, what Jesus was saying to the rich man as well. You give all that you have to the poor, and in the end, it will be gain for you because you'll have treasure in heaven. That's the same logic that he's using here. You lose your house, you lose your family for the sake of Christ and the gospel, and Jesus promises you'll receive a hundredfold family, houses, and land, and also in the age to come, eternal life. But he also includes persecutions, just to remind us that this life isn't as easy as we often think. There will be gain, but there will also be pain. As one commentator put it, one house gone, but a hundred doors are open. One brother in the flesh lost, but a thousand brothers in the spirit whose love is deeper and whose kinship is profound. Many missionaries have testified to this reality where they've, they've left behind so much, but in the end, they've also gained so much. And some of you know this actually experientially. Some of you in following Christ 
have lost relationships with your unbelieving family, or the relationship was at least damaged greatly. But you can testify that you've gained so much as well with your spiritual family. And I think if anything, this should call us to really reconsider what it means to be the family of God. Now here's the question that each of us truly needs to ask this morning. Will you, for the sake of Christ and the gospel, be willing to sacrifice whatever Christ might ask of you, believing that in the end it will be gained? Will you, for the sake of Christ and the gospel, be willing to sacrifice whatever Christ might ask of you, believing that in the end it will be gained? See, for each of us, it may be different, but nevertheless, it will be worth it because those who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Let's pray. Father, I pray that each of us would do, truly do some soul-searching today. To ask you to search our hearts and to see what idols are there that we are enslaved to, that need to be repented of and forsaken. And I pray, Lord, that each of us would truly know what it means to follow after Jesus. I pray that if there's any person in this room who does not know you, that in your mercy, God, you would cause them to see their idolatry and to realize they need to repent of their sins and trust in the only one who has the power to give them eternal life and to grant them the forgiveness of sins. And his name is Jesus. Help us, Lord, to take your calling upon our lives more seriously. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.